May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. There's always something new in ministry, no matter how many years you've served, and uh, preaching with a crutch is uh, new to me, so we'll see if I don't flail it around too much. All right. (laughs) I wonder if you've ever heard that country western song that goes, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror. I get better looking each day. The singer, Mac Davis, goes on and on about all his good qualities and how that makes him uh, uh, hard to stay humble because he's just got so much going for him. In our epistle today, the second lesson, St. Paul kind of does that too. In the portion of St. Paul's letter to the Philippians that was read today, the first thing he does is to set up all of his wonderful credentials so very humbly. Humble brag, I guess we call it now. Paul writes, If anyone has reason to be confident, I have more. He lists his former elevated status as an academic and as a persecutor. He lists his privilege who he was and what he had accomplished. He just goes on and on. The truth is, I hear this kind of talk a lot these days. In fact, I've heard it all my life. I've even used it sometimes myself. It's a justification not by faith, but an attempt of justification by status, by accomplishments, by worth measured by something more than the virtues and grace and mercy of God. Like Paul, so many families or people like to point out our history, who our people are. They consider their past to elevate their present status somehow. For me, growing up, most summers we would visit uh, my grandparents' gorgeous farm in Virginia on a branch off of a creek off of the Potomac River. We would garden, we would crab, we would fish, and hear the long history of our family in that beautiful area of Virginia. On Sundays, we always went to one of the historic Episcopal churches close by. We would walk the faded brick path with the smell of boxwoods past the old cemetery where some of our ancestors were buried. Folks who had been members of the House of Burgesses, the first governing body of the Virginia colony. Lots of history. Inside the church, the families had designated pews. Though there were no plaques in sight, Those in the know knew where to sit. 
There was a lot of talk about who your people were. There was always palpable tension and jaw-clenching and pearl-grabbing when my family showed up. This is nobody's real name, just a stand-in. Mrs. Smith, on the second row, looked like she needed her smelling salts and fanned herself furiously so she wouldn't fall out as my Motley Crew family walked by. My brother, Nathan, was adopted before I was born, and he is black. And the reason why, Mrs. Smith looked like she was about to fall out. Nathan would often be the only black person in the church. We learned a lot about racism by watching how people in the first families of Virginia, those with impeccable historic pedigrees, deeply rooted in the elegant Episcopal Church, dealt with Nathan's presence. And it wasn't by self-emptying like Christ. You can use your imagination. I'm not picking on my family. This dynamic reoccurs over and over again throughout our country. But when I was experiencing it back then growing up, it made me tremble with rage and fear for the working out of our salvation. I would speak up loudly in the hallways when people tried to tell me that Nathan wasn't my brother, or they cold-shouldered him, or watched how many cookies he took at coffee hour. So that's the part I like to remember, how I stood up for my brother, for our family, for justice. To say that all that blue blood garbage, racist social distancing, and prejudices lay squarely on the shoulders of those types of white people. But if I'm honest, I will remember all the times I did not defend him or speak up. Did not defend him because it suited me somehow, because it let me get my way, or got me out of trouble for something that I had done. Like the time we were playing ping pong on the porch and we were both responsible for breaking something out there and my grandmother came out and I just pointed to him right away and he got the paddle. So many things, so many times. All the things, all the times. Recently, I read an essay by David Gamble, Jr., an attorney and humorist from Nevada, about all the times his white friends and neighbors dismissed him in third grade, in middle school, in high school, and on and on. An essay which could have been written by my brother. 
Gamble writes, to be black in America is to be told over and over that you are not good enough, that you do not belong, that you are genetically unfit, that your physical presence is undesirable, and that everything about you, right down to your lips, is wrong. And then, gloriously, beautifully, he writes, despite my experience, I would not choose to be anything other than a black American. To strain forward in suffering, as Paul writes about in the epistle, to preserve, persevere towards the goal. For us now, the goal of an anti-racist future towards the dawn of resurrection might look like David Gambler Jr. acknowledging and naming his very real suffering, yet not wanting to be anything else but who God made him to be, and I would add, in Christ, whom God made him to be in Christ. Paul understood, St. Paul understood himself to be in tension between the past and the future. But to be honest, to get there, he had to be knocked off his high horse. He actually literally fell off the horse when he had a vision of Christ. And that's how he got in the race towards a future in Christ. Paul talks about running a race and looking forward, not looking back, and to be moving towards a completion, a completion that will take place someday with and in Christ. As he writes, he has not yet received the victory prize, and the final race has not been completed. And in this sense, St. Paul doesn't differ from the Philippians because they move forward towards the goal but have not completed the race either, and neither have we. I've heard that a runner should not think of the distance behind, but must set their mind on the goal ahead. Paul does not think we make it there on our own or alone. That is not the purpose or how you quote-unquote complete or win the race. It's not to be done on our own or alone. Paul says the prize is won not by coming in first, but simply by getting in the race and crossing the finish line together with others. The goal is the calling of God, the focus, resurrection, which has us reevaluate our lives as Paul did, not with the markers of status, but with unity with each other and hope in Christ. So to be clear, once again, there is no justification by status in the kingdom or reign of God. So this may not be historically accurate, but I have come to regard it as some kind of truth 
It's where I land as I wrestle with this text. When Paul talks about forgetting what lies behind and straining on to what lies ahead, maybe he means a kind of renouncing of whatever lies behind. Not a forgetting as in a kind of forgive and forget for me and my privilege. So I can just forget all the bad things I did. Not a a forget about it in a Jersey let's move on kind of way. Not in a it's no big deal kind of way. But a renouncing an undoing of what we have learned so that we may be transformed into the mind of Christ, which is beautiful, a mind that is not demeaning, privilege-seeking, or racist, a renouncing that transforms and sustains as we press on, working out salvation with humility. So I was back in Virginia last year, and we went to a beautiful historic Episcopal church in Richmond. The church is called St. Paul's. It's right across from the State House. It's been there for quite a while. St. Paul's in stained glass, St. Paul is depicted with... um, Jefferson Davis's face, and Robert E. Lee is depicted as Moses. Those images and stained glass remain there in that Episcopal church, but they, the people there, who are now stewards of that church, have taken out, taken down all the Confederate flags they could which were considerable, and they had a lot of opposition. And even more recently, the good people of St. Paul's left the Black Lives Matter that had been spray-painted on the steps of their church by protesters. They left it there in support of the protesters. This is a church doing tough work. They don't rest on their laurels, on their past, on their endowment, on their prestige. They press on towards the goal. Not perfectly, but faithfully. So press on, people. Press on that Christ might welcome us on the day of resurrection as we, together with as many as we can, cross the finish line, receiving the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. And while we get there, as we try to get there, let us try to be at least a little bit humble. Amen.